Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone doing? Are you awake? You are? Wow. I think it's because it's so pretty in George. You just want to wake up and look at the mountains all the time. In Pretoria, we need to find other things to get us to wake up. Coffee. <laughs> I'm just going to move this. Because I like to walk. <laughs> Um, it's it's really so good to be here. Uh, I think the last time we visited was in 2017. Um, so it's been five years. It's crazy. And it's so crazy to see all the different seasons. Hello, Luke. I haven't seen you. <laughs> I know Luke from, from university. Um, oh, he's grown so much. <laughs> oh, Papa Luke. <laughs> Thank you for your call, Luke. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> no, it's it's amazing to come here, and every season of our lives look different. And um, uh, the previous time, Andres was also here, but we were only dating, and that's an interesting story. I'm going to talk about it a bit later. But <laughs> I'm just so grateful that he came along, and we were dating, and now we are actually married. Imagine I married someone else. It would have been a bit awkward, maybe. Anyway... I'll talk about it a bit later, but um, I'm just going to share a short introduction. If you stumbled into church and you're not really sure what's happening this morning or today, I'm just going to tell you a bit more about myself. And then I will be sharing from um, John 4, the woman at the well, and then uh, there'll be an invitation. I'm really just going to give time for the Lord to minister and us to minister to Him. All right, so my name is... um, Simonai Pretorius. I used to be uh, Simonai Nordman, but um, the surname sounds like the surname of an angry soldier in World War II. So um, I d- <laughs> this man is like, yes, it does. It does. It was a good call to take your husband's surname. Um, my husband's surname is Pretorius, obviously, and um, I was just so excited to get married to him. I was like, I am taking everything that you have. <laughs> I'm coming under the surname Pretorius. My husband's forefather is the Andres Pretorius that started the town of Pretoria. And so, you know, I want that generational blessing. Amen. Yes. Yes. I'm not sure if everyone believes now, but anyway, <laughs> it might be a bit controversial sometimes. Anyway, I'm a, an actress. Um, predominantly, I started into, it's been longer than, it's been 12 years of, um, of being in the industry. 10 years, sorry, my maths isn't great. It's been 10 years. Um, I also do screenwriting. Recently, I started writing stories, and I'm also, I also started writing a story, not started, already finished writing a screenplay on uh, my mother's life. I'll tell you about that now. And uh, a, a few other things. And I'm also venturing into the very dark and mysterious waters of directing. So I'm truly grateful. Um, God is raising up storytellers. And I do think that, you know, storytelling shifts culture. And so sometimes we look at the entertainment industry and we're like, oh, it's a very dark place. and Oh, we need, we need laborers. But also, we need people to go in there and start writing the stories so that we can shift culture. It's not just about acting and having influence. It really, truly is about starting to write stories that Jesus can be glorified in, but also subtly. We want people's heart to be, hearts to be engaged. Anyway, I have so much to share about that. I love, I love my job. I love, I'm just so, so grateful that God knew and that God knows what he's doing with our lives, right? He writes much better stories than I could ever dream of. Um, I have a daughter. <laughs> She's 16 months old, 15, 16 months old. Um, her name is Harper Harvest Pretorius. Uh, she 
looks like her dad, but she is like her mom, and that is the Lord's sense of humor. That truly is God having you deal with yourself, basically. It's, she throws a tantrum because she can't get something, and in that moment, the Lord's like, yes, you understand now? So, um, yeah, she's amazing. I love her so much. She's very busy, so um, please pray for us. And please pray for my husband. That's, I'm getting to that now. My husband is Andres Pretorius, obviously. Um, he is he's the most incredible man that I've ever, ever met. Uh, I spoke to, to friends of ours um, that just met him once. And they said the most amazing thing, and I really want to share that with you. They said that Andres is the kind of person that when he meets you, he stands still. He stops for the one, and he engages with you in such a way that you feel like the most important, important person in the room. He really makes you feel seen and known and loved. And there are very few people that I've come across that can truly, truly make you feel like that. So I get to have him. <laughs> I get to be his. And it's my greatest honor. Um, so he's, he's behind there and he's, <laughs> he's sort of getting not used to it. But generally when I, when I speak, then he obviously looks after Hopper. And so he loves mother's rooms. <laughs> he's like the father in the mother's room. And he's so secure about it. He just loves the ladies. <laughs> the, well, not like that. But anyway. <laughs> he's amazing. Um, and then truly, I... As much as I love my husband and I love my job and I love my daughter and I love everything, I really, really just love Jesus. He has, um, I just start speaking about it and my heart just wants to burst because he truly is my greatest prize and he is the pearl of great prize. I will give away anything. I will buy any field. He is the one thing for me and my heart burns for him. Um, and it's an honor to stand up <laughs> just can clap, but yes, amen. <laughs> it is a work that he does in your heart to truly render and yield everything. It's not by our own doing. We give him a choice, you know, we say yes to him. But I have to tell you that earlier this year, we were in Kansas City and, and Mike Bickle, um, he took the stage and he started talking and ministering and he, he said, he shared the story of how we can ask the Father, to help us love His Son. We can ask God to help us love Jesus more. We can ask the Holy Spirit to help us love Him better. And when I started praying that prayer, it was so scary to know that God helps me love Him better. God helps me love God better. How crazy. I can't do it from my flesh. There's so little that I can do. All I can do is give him my yes. He takes everything else and he just softens, you know. But anyway, so I, I love him. Um, I will give him anything, any day. And I also, sorry, on that note, when we were in Kansas City, I actually feel like I have to go back to that. So we were in Kansas City and it was actually an event called The Send. Um, I'm speaking one of the things I know that my fine fragrance friends are like, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> But um, we were at the send, and uh, we were, myself and Andres went, we sat there like apart from everyone else, and it was actually this event that, that is supposed to catalyze the American church to go out into the missions field, to really be activated in their missional callings. So a message for the American church, but also in a global sense, just an activation to have an outward focus again, right? And so we're standing there, and someone gets on stage, and he's telling the story of how one boy got saved in a high school parking lot. And then a teacher runs out, and she starts weeping. She's filled with the Spirit. She says, oh my word, there's five more in my classroom. We've been praying for people to come 
sharing the gospel in our high schools. Will you come? And they go inside the classroom. Five more students get saved. They get baptized that evening. They're taken into the kingdom of God, right? The entire stadium like jumps up in applause for five, for six high school kids getting saved in America. And I, myself and I, we look at each other and we're like, oh my word. Number one, the window of opportunity to share the gospel in high schools in South Africa is still massive. We need to take the opportunity. Number two, God is highlighting Generation Z. <laughs> He's absolutely like marking them and highlighting them for us, for older generations to say, will you rise up and mother and father a younger generation to walk in their calling? Do you know that Gen Z is the generation that will see every tribe and tongue reach the gospel? Like they will be the ones seeing that happen in their lifetime. And they're radical. They are absolutely, their zeal is offensive. (laughs) Their zeal and their hunger is offensive. They are so wholehearted and so fully devoted once they get the gospel, they run with it fearlessly. It's offensive, but it's supposed to bring us to our knees, to the millennial generation, the boomers, the zoomers, everyone else. Like their zeal will bring us to repentance because we struggle with lukewarmness and they don't. They want the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They want, they want everything that Jesus has to offer for them. And when they get it, and it isn't fact-checked, and it isn't inauthentic, and it isn't filtered, they run with it. So can I encourage you as a congregation, if you are older in the faith, if you've been with the Lord for a while, to really open yourself up and make yourselves available to pour into Gen Z. Gen Z, and then there's Gen Alpha, which is our children, you know, our babies. And it's, it's, it's this thing that I realized this week. It's Jesus says he's the alpha and he's the omega. He's the beginning and the end. Gen Z is the end of the alphabet. And Gen Alpha is the beginning of the alphabet. There's something about Jesus and alpha and omega. There's something about the two generations that's rising up. And Jesus, carrying the character of Jesus, carrying a hunger for Jesus, being lovesick for their bridegroom. It's, it's going to take more than just revival, personal revival, giftings, anointings, deliverances. What, it's the lovesickness for the return of the bridegroom that'll bring Jesus back and that'll purify the church. God is raising up Gen Z and Gen Alpha to do that. Will we partner with him? Will we partner with him? So we've been busy with a a tour last week um, with our friends at Fire and Fragrance, and we've been holding gatherings only in three places, but we're trusting the Lord for more, and we're also trusting for strategy. It's still very, very, very new and very young, but we are excited to see what he's going to do. But anyway, we are partnering with Gen Z, and we're inviting everyone to also to rise up for the occasion. All right, so... Today, this morning, I am. Um, I want to talk to you about the woman at the well. Uh, I'm not sure. I didn't actually give you any any slides. Sorry, but it's <laughs> there at the back. No, sorry. Um, it's in John four. If you have your Bibles with you, if you don't, God will forgive you for that. Maybe I'm. I don't know. You have to repent. <laughs> Kidding. I have a dry sense of humor, stick with me. <laughs> yes. Right, so 
talking about the woman at the well, she is absolutely one of my favorite characters in, in the word, and specifically because she is not named, <laughs> number one. She doesn't have a name. So many people, like if you think about the Bible, how many people have names? Everyone has a name. They're like, and then Ananias, and then this person, and then there's like one per person mentioned in one sentence, and they have a name. The woman at the well is one of the longest encounters that Jesus has with someone in the book of John, and she doesn't have a name. She's just the this, this Samaritan woman. And I think it's important to know because Samaria was so, such a controversial topic for the Jews. Not a controversial, it's they despised them, to put it bluntly. They absolutely hated Samaritans. There's this like 500-year-old history of the Jews and the Samaritans that do not sit well with each other. The Jews feel that the Samaritans have compromised, they are serving other gods, they've completely fallen away, and they are just like shoved to the outskirts of the entire nation, all right? So they want nothing to do with the Samaritans. Samaritans. Anyway, she represents the lowest of the low in a community um, where women are treated with a lot of disrespect. <laughs> so I'll get, oh, anyway, I'm going to say it now because I might just forget. But Jesus talks to a woman, and in that day, a teacher and a rabbi may not have talked to a woman. Like it was even, it was frowned upon to even talk to your daughter <laughs> or your wife in a sense. And Jesus comes and he talks to a woman and a Samaritan woman at that. Um, also, she arrives there in, in the afternoon and not in the middle of the day, not in the morning, not in the evening when most women go and draw water. So she is an outcast in her society. She fears other women. Why, why is she not in community? Why is she not going out when everyone else is going out? Important. Um, she meets Jesus. She becomes the first evangelist, <laughs> apart from John the Baptist that prepared the way for Jesus. She becomes the first evangelist that evangelizes to an entire town. The whole town runs to Jesus because of this woman's word. That's amazing. And then she, she has the longest encounter with Jesus. So let's read. John 4. I'm not going to. Anyway, John 4, verse 5 to 30. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar. Uh, near the field that David, Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and so Jesus, wearied as he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Uh, important to note that Jesus knew exactly how to get her to come to him. I imagine that a woman in that society, being a woman, and you look down upon, and you have had five husbands. I'm giving away the story, but I'm sure everyone knows it already in a sense. But he doesn't sit there with all of his disciples. Why? Because he knows that this woman probably fears men, fears a collective group of men, and fears the Jews. So Jesus, with his disciples at the well, she would see them and she would turn around and she would go back. She would not come there. But Jesus alone is a different story. And he, drew, he draws her to her. But I just love how considerate and how compassionate Jesus is, knowing what her greatest fears are, knowing how she would respond, knowing what would shove her away. He's like, I'm going to get rid of all the distractions. I just want one-on-one -on -one with you. The Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you, a Jew, asks a drink of me, a woman, of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman says to him, 
Okay, but you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself, himself his sons and his cattle? Feels a bit like a snarky <laughs> response to him. I feel like she was a bit sarcastic. Like, oh, are you greater than this person? Because you don't have, a, you don't have something to, to get the water with. Um, and Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give will never thirst. The water that I shall give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman says to him, okay, give me this water that I may not thirst. No, come here to draw water. Bargain. I don't have to come and draw water again. I don't have to come in the middle of the day when it's really warm. I don't have to try to avoid other women in the community. Give me the thing that I need in order to avoid the things that trigger my pain. And Jesus says, go call your husband and come here. Immediately, immediately goes to the one thing that hinders love. Immediately goes to the one thing that he knows she carries so much shame about. Immediately. He doesn't, he doesn't waste time. He tells her, I am able to give you th- uh, water, eternal water. He realizes that she doesn't get it. He knows that the shame in her heart is what's going to hinder love. He says, go call your husband. She says to him, I don't have a husband. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying that you don't have a husband because you have had five husbands and the one that you are with now is not your husband. You, you are right. I know that you are right. Six love affairs. That's insane. Six love affairs. And in that time, the law of Moses said that you may only get married three times. So I don't know what happened to, to her first three husbands. Maybe, maybe some of them died. Maybe they divorced and maybe she fell into adultery. And the adulterous affairs were one of those affairs or husbands that Jesus talks about. So what were the other three? And how used Mashiach felt? You know, enough so that she actually changes the subject then. But six, six love affairs, six rejections, six times or five times, five times she's been said that she isn't good enough. Five disappointments. The heap of shame and disappointment on this woman's life is immense, absolutely immense. And the woman changes the subject. She says to him, oh, I see that you are a prophet. Okay, okay, so this is what we are dealing with. And she changes the subject again. You know, so our fathers used to worship on this mountain, but you, you actually sound out that did you? She goes into political matters. She goes into like religious stuff. Okay, it's way easier to just talk about religion than to actually talk about the, the shame and the stuff in my heart. Obviously, I'm not going to go there. You're an absolute stranger. So, okay, yes, the prophet. So let's talk about the prophets. Let's talk about where you worship. Is it on this mountain? Is it in Jerusalem where you, where you need to worship? And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. I just have to put that straight. What you believe is deception. You will worship. Salvation is from the Jews. I need to show you that it's not going to come from where you think it's going to come from. It's going to come from where I say it's going to come from. The hour is coming and now is because I am here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such the Father seeks to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. And this is where the conversation turns. This is, this is like if I had to direct a scene from this for a movie... 
I would have told the Samaritan woman, okay, this is like, what do you think happens in her heart at this moment? Because suddenly, she probes him. Suddenly, she's asking questions, truly wanting to know the answer, not changing the subject, not just making chit-chat, not being sarcastic. She truly says this, and I feel like this is, like she puts it out there waiting for Jesus to give the answer. She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, the one who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will show us all these things. And I imagine there's this look in her eye like, is, are you who I think you are? Is this? And it dawns on her. She sort of comes to her senses. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. Pause. <laughs> Beat. In, in screenwriting, you write there, beat. It's a sailor moment. So this gets me to the question, who is Jesus to you? Because Jesus sitting in front of the Samaritan woman saying to her, I am he. I am the one that your heart longs for. Completely changed the direction of her life. Completely changed her life. Radically turned around. She became an evangelist. Because Jesus stood in front of her saying to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ that is coming into the world to save this, the world of its sins. Is Jesus to you the, the Jesus who ate with sinners? Is Jesus the one to you who ate with tax collectors? Is Jesus the one who flipped tables in the church? <laughs> is it the Jesus who... Is the lamb that was slain? Is it Jesus the soft one? Is it Jesus the friend? Is it Jesus the lover? Is it Jesus the son that brings us into the house of God? Is it the Jesus of revelation? Is it the bridegroom that is coming back? Is it the one with hair white as wool and, and a voice like mighty waters, with fire in his eyes, lovesick, desperate, longing? Who is Jesus to you? And there's a, a part, it's in Matthew 15, 16 verse 15, where Jesus asks his disciples. I, I imagine they're just walking along a road, and Jesus asks them, right, so who, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Who do they think it's going to be? Who do they think it is? And, uh, and they answer, oh, some say it's John the Baptist, that he's the Messiah. Some say that it was, it's Elijah, he's the son of man. Um, some say it's, you know, they just sort of say it's all the prophets. And Jesus stops and he turns to them and he says, who do you say I am? Important. Who do you say? That's what they are saying. Who do you say I am? And I I'm thinking Simon Peter, he's such, I love his character. I just, I love his character. I just love him so much. He's just spontaneous and he's just, I, I imagine him saying, oh, but you are, you, like, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. Obviously, you are the one to come. <laughs> it's like nonchalantly. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because this was not revealed to you by yourself. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. You have to know that the revelation of Jesus as the Messiah in your mind is not you. It's the Father who has revealed that to you. Salvation is a gift. It's not something you conjure up. You cannot do anything to work for it. So the, the revelation of Jesus comes from the Father. And on that revelation, Jesus says, 
on this rock, on this rock that is the revelation of who I am, I will build my church. I will not build my church on your works. I will not build my church on your striving. I will not build my church on your gifts. I will build my church on the revelation of Jesus as the Christ in your life. That's where I shall build my church on. And even apart from that, he says, onto that, he says, and I will give you the keys and whatever you open in heaven will be opened on earth. Whatever you close will be closed on earth. Do you know that everything flows from a revelation of who I am? I have to tell you a story and it's, um, it's, it was, it, I only look back at it now and I realize how, how absolutely liberating it is, but I was doing many things in Jesus' name. I was working for him and I was serving him in so many ways. And people's lives were changed. Even before he became Lord over my life. Sobering, very, very sobering. So back in 2017 when Andres and myself were still dating. Actually, I have to backtrack a bit. Um, I... <laughs> we started dating in, um, in 2015, and he was always that person for me. So when I met him, he, he had like a mullet and he was wearing a PT, PT pants. <laughs> but, but when we spoke and when we had, we had this moment, and in my heart I was like, oh, this is someone I would like to marry one day. But I never thought that I would be worthy of someone like Andres. Red flag insecurity, major insecurity. So 2015 arrives, and um, in 2014, I was actually dating another guy. <laughs> Luke knows him. He's a great guy. But anyway, he's the first guy I dated that actually loved Jesus. So I was like, oh, then obviously this is the man I should marry. <laughs> because before that, every other person that I dated were not saved, and I tried to get them to church. I was like, I, was like, I will date him, Lord, because I know that he needs salvation, so I will just bring him to church. <laughs> and I would be the one that backslid every single time. Every single time. I could never get them saved. <laughs> never. And why? Because the fruit of my heart was not pure. I didn't carry fruit. It was all about what I said and not about what, what, what my life looked like. Because Jesus wasn't Lord over my heart. And so um, I broke up with this guy. He broke up with me. Oh, praise God. Thank you. Thank you so much. Anyway, he broke up with me. And then a few months after, actually a month after, Andres came into my life. Andres had his whole story. Uh, but we started dating really very soon after my previous breakup. And I said yes to Andres, even though I knew in my heart that I needed to be single for a time. I didn't understand why at the time, but I just knew something felt off for me. Something felt like one degree south. And that one degree south usually goes into a completely different direction. You miss it completely. One degree of compromise. And so I said yes to Andres because I mean, I don't know if I'm going to get this opportunity again. If it's a give a partner back, you go for it. Andres, Andres comes from a history at that stage. His parents just went through a messy divorce and there was a lot of pain. But he was also not dealing with that. So we were both very oblivious and very, very much in love. And we were just like, this is the person I'm going to marry. <laughs> we started dating in 2015. I went to Heidi Baker's Harvest School that June. I came back from Harvest School and I knew that the Lord was putting his finger on something. But I didn't want to listen. Even after 
giving up my career, giving up Siemendalon, going to a mission school for three months, there was still something on the altar of my heart that Jesus wanted, and I didn't want to give it to him. And then pressing it, pressing it, pressing it. And I was denying it, denying it. And eventually in December, I was like, okay, Lord, if we need to break up, you need to tell him as well. <laughs> I was negotiating with the Lord. I'm like, he hears your voice as well. Why must it only come from me? God was kind. And in December, Andre said to me, I think we should break up. We break up. We know it's from the Lord. But we were so in love and we were so broken and we were one another's crutches. He was a crutch for me. And so a few months after, we started dating again. We were like, we are semi-still dating. So let's just put the stamp back on and call it, call it that and say that the Lord is really saying that we should be together. <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> and so we are back together in August of 2016. And we're like, okay, but now we are all in. All right. This is now unto marriage. We are going to make this work. We, so we start like doing dating seminars and we start going for couples therapy and we start trying like going for deliverance and all of this stuff. But the thing we need to be delivered of is each other. <laughs> anyway, and so months go by and in 2017, 2017, the Lord shows me that marriage is an idol in my heart. That Andres is an idol in my heart. And I love that the worship actually <laughs> confirmed that I, wasn't, I didn't even know what was going to be said. I wasn't at intercession. But I knew that for everything else has to fall away. It just so, you know, connects with this message. And so I read a book called Counterfeit Gods from Timothy Keller. can highly recommend it. The Empty Promises of Money, Sex, and Power, and the Only Hope That Matters. Just a few quotes from it. An idol is whatever you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then I'll feel my life has meaning. Then I'll know I have value and then I'll feel significant and secure. The true God of your heart is what your thoughts effortlessly go to when there is nothing else demanding your attention. Idols give us a sense of being in control and we can locate them by looking at our nightmares. What do we fear the most? What if we lost it would make life not worth living? We make sacrifices to appease and please our gods, who we believe will protect us. And so 2017 came, and the, the longer I was in a relationship with Andres, the more I grew distant from the Lord. And I was even at your church. I still did a service here. But I would go home, I would feel the presence of God, and he worked, you know, he was, he was ministering. But I would go home, and I would, close the doors of my room and I would feel so lonely. I couldn't hear the Lord's voice anymore. My heart grew lukewarm towards Jesus because every time I was in his presence, he was saying to me, you need to let it go. You need to, you need to lay down this Isaac of yours. You need to go. You need to break up with Andres. You need to obey me. And I didn't want to hear it, so I would walk away. And so I was like, yes, God really just feels full. I feel like I can't hear his voice. Simonai, you were disobedient. But why? Because Jesus wasn't Lord over my life. Who Jesus was to me, I was very much in love with the Father. I was very much all about the orphan spirit and identity and becoming a daughter in the house. But if you spoke to me about Jesus and Lordship, I would have run away because it costed me. And I didn't want to pay the price. And eventually... 
Isaiah 48 verse 18 says, If you had obeyed me, peace would have flown to you like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Why do we not have peace? Why did I not have peace? Because I was disobedient. Our love needs to look like something. If it doesn't cost you, then maybe you don't know what has been paid for you. Maybe you haven't seen the whole Jesus. Maybe your encounter with Jesus was maybe a long time ago. Maybe you need refreshment in terms of the revelation of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Lord, not just Jesus the prophet, the rabbi, the teacher, or Jesus the friend, or Jesus the sibling, but Jesus the bridegroom. Because if he's your bridegroom, you will obey him. It's not harsh. Obedience is not a harsh word. It's an act of love. It's how can I love you more, Jesus? What can I give you? What am I holding back from you? I want to give you everything. You are worthy of every single thing. And so I want to get back to the worship team. We can come back on. I want to get back to, to the woman at the well. I, um, I finally broke up with Andres. I have to obviously finish the story. I forgot. I broke up with Andres. He was very angry. He moved to Cape Town. Praise God. So we couldn't see one another again. But in that time, Andres, Andres, Andres was the Isaac. Even the promise of God that I would have a healthy marriage one day. Andres was the thing that possessed my heart and possessed my thoughts and possessed my desires and possessed my future. Do you know that the, the woman with the alabaster box, Mary, do you know that the alabaster box, the perfume, was actually a gift from her father that she would be able to give to her husband one day? Oh, that was actually what that perfume was. And she carried it with her. It was actually her future that she was carrying. It was something of worth that put worth on her. This is how much I am worth. If a husband connects himself to me, this is a gift from my father to him as a bride's price. And so Mary runs to Jesus. She takes her future. She takes everything about her. She takes even the thing that is supposed to bless someone else, the promises of the future. And she breaks it at the feet of Jesus. She says, you have my future. You have everything I have collected that is of worth for me. And I give it to you. And I wipe your feet with my hair. I become so undignified in your presence. Completely humiliating myself in front of everyone. But you, Jesus, I have seen who you are. And this is my response to you. Everything. You have everything. And that evening after I broke up with Andres, I was weeping in my room. I felt so... I felt such a relief in a sense. I was so grateful that the Lord didn't turn his back on me. Three, three years of disobedience. Three years of proclaiming the name of Jesus, of saying, Jesus, you are enough for me. And he wasn't enough for me. I lied to the Lord. So many times in worship, you are enough for me. It wasn't enough for me. Jesus says to the church in Revelation, I honor you for your perseverance, but you have lost your first love. You need to return. You need to return to first love. 
when God said to Abram to offer his son, I really kind of laugh at the story because Abram was so obedient. It says, after God tested him, tested his love for him, as if God would not test us, God tested Abram. God tested Abram and said, offer your son. And then it says, the next morning he arose and he was obedient. It took me three years. What do you need to bring to the altar today? Or maybe some of you, you are sitting here, you cannot, you're like, similar. I have never had the Samaritan encounter with Jesus. What happened at the, at the well afterwards is as soon as Jesus said to her, I am he, I am the Messiah, I am the one who is to come, I am the Christ. She drops her bucket in shock and something fills her heart and her eyes are opened and she realizes that something major just, and I need to share it. And she drops the thing that she came here for with all the effort that she goes through to get water. It costs her to go draw water in the middle of the day. She doesn't care about the water anymore, right? She drops the bucket. She runs back to the place where her shame comes from. She runs to the place with the men that look down on her, the place where she is shunned, where she probably has been stoned or wanted to be stoned where people discuss her, where women hate her, where she's an absolute reject. She runs into that town with joy in her eyes and she says, you have to come. You have to come because there's a man there and he told me everything. I think he is Jesus. I think he is the Messiah. I think he is the Christ. Come. And they look at her. I mean, if it was anyone else, I imagine they would be like, okay, you are crazy. But this woman... This particular woman, this reject of society, this outcast comes back and she's like, she looks different. Her eyes look different. She looks alive. She's so rid of the shame that kept her back. She runs to them. She ministers to them. She calls them. And they're like, okay, something's happening. I have to see this. They drop everything and they run to Jesus. And Jesus sits at the well and the disciples come to him and they want to give him bread. They want to give him something to eat. And Jesus says to him, no, 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 no. I don't want your bread. Do you want to know what fills me? There they come. There they are. Like wheat fields ripe with harvest. White, 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 ripe for harvest. The Samaritans wore white. It was a picture of the cornfields, of the wheat fields. When they are ripe, they were white. And the Samaritans come running up with their white dresses and their everything. And Jesus says, there they are. This is what fills me. This is the hunger. This is the food that I long to eat. Not take your bread away from me. That, that is what I came for. I came for them. I came for cities and towns to know that I am the Christ. If we stop sharing, maybe we have stopped spending time with first love. Maybe it's because either I first haven't haven't had an encounter with first love. Or maybe secondly, because I've forgotten who he is. Will you please stand with me? I want to say to you this morning that 
it is going to cost you. And it's a lie that says that if I become saved, if I become reborn, then my life is going to be easy. That's not the truth. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you your future. It's going to cost you your alabaster box. It's going to cost you your reputation, your dignity. It's going to cost you your disappointment. It's going to cost you your unforgiveness. But Jesus wants everything. And He is worthy of everything. I, when my parents fell pregnant with me, my parents didn't want me and, and I suffered immense rejection in the womb. My mom tried to abort me four times. It didn't work. <laughs> Spoiler alert. She then uh, put me up for adoption. A month before she was supposed to go into labor, uh, the, the Air Force found out that uh, she was pregnant. She was trying to hide it from them because she would lose her job if she was pregnant without being married. She was a Samaritan woman. And so she put me up for adoption. I was born a month too early. The doctor didn't know that I was an adoption baby. He put me on my mother's chest instead of taking me out of the room. And in that moment when my mom locked eyes with me and she saw me, her heart completely changed. She decided to keep me. She decided to throw away her life, to waste her future for that which was on her chest, for that which she locked eyes with, obedience. She kept me. And then she got a disciplinary hearing because she kept her baby and because she lied to them. And because they could find no fault in her and because the favor of God was on her life because she was obedient, she became the first woman in the South African Air Force to keep her baby and her job. Obedience. Obedience. And it cost her, but she was obedient. But we don't do it for the reward and the favor. We do it because He is worthy, because we lock eyes with love. And today I stand before you and every single day that I wake up, every single day that I stand in front of a crowd like this, the enemy shivers because he regrets having come for me in my mother's womb. He will regret trying to take out your life. He will, he will regret the pain that he is causing you. Joseph said, though you wanted to harm me, God used it for the good. And even so that many may come to salvation. He can use your pain. There's a purpose with your pain.